Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. Amen. Will you pray with me, Father? We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege to come together as your people, Lord, to worship you. Father, we thank you for the work, God, that you are doing in our midst, Lord, and we pray today, Father, that we might see God, how you are working in ways that we could not even imagine. Lord, in places and, Lord, in in moments behind the scenes, Lord, that your uh, providential hand, Father, is working uh, for our good and for your glory, God. And we pray, Lord, that we would leave this place, Lord, declaring that, yes, I will. Lord, I'm reminded and so thankful, Lord, that you are a God who never fails. You are a God whose promises are true. They are yes and amen, God. And there is nothing that can thwart your plans, God. There's nothing. Uh, greater than you, Father. And I pray, God, that you would empower your people, God, to live for the glory of your name, God, that we might leave this place different than we came. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Amen. That song is uh, a special song to me. Super grateful for uh, our band and for Clark as he leads them and just the the work that God is doing uh, through them. That song has had a special place in uh, my heart as uh, There's been moments where you kind of grow weary and just at the right time, it seems like that song will come on and it reminds us that we have a God uh, who is never defeated, uh, that we fight not for victory, but that we fight from victory, uh, that we have a God who is working in the midst of all things for the glory of his name, a God who uh, promises in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those uh, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that doesn't mean that every moment along the way is filled with no problems and no joy, but we have a God who is working and orchestrating and doing things greater than we could ever imagine. As I think about uh, this passage that we're going into this morning, I was reminded of this uh, Arab proverb that said uh, that there were some things that you could not get back. I think it was like three things that cometh not back or something kind of like that. But the, uh, the, the wording in it basically said that, you know, the spoken word is something that doesn't uh, return, that you can't get back. And we've all experienced that. We've let something out that we uh, may have wished we hadn't said, right? And now if they were writing that today, it might be like an email or a social media post or a text message. Those are things that uh, cometh not back. I hear the new iOS update, you'll be able to edit your text message, so maybe you can get it before they see it, right? But there's those kind of things, right? The second thing was the sped arrow, the sped arrow. Now, I learned when I was a pretty young man that the sped arrow did not come back. Now, for you young people that are in the room, this is descriptive. This is not prescriptive. This is not something that you should do, but this is something that I did. Now, my family raised chickens. I was not always a big fan of those chickens, and I had a bow and arrow when I was young, and so uh, one day, you know where this is going. Right, and so one day I decided that I was going to practice with my bow and arrow, and I'd never been that great of a shot until that day. And so I got out and drew back my bow, right? And this chicken on the move, right? I'm then I'm aiming ahead, and the next thing you know, like there's a bank behind it, and I, I I'm not really proud of this. I repented of it um, a long time ago, but I shot this this chicken, and the arrow went in, and and it hit a rock in the bank, and so this chicken has this arrow sticking out both sides, and it's they run around a while. I figured out and especially long enough to try to run under this little access hole in the house for my mom to see this chicken's like stuck. <laughs> here I am with the bow like this is not coming back right this is a bad idea and I was in big trouble right so we have those kind of moments right but the other thing that doesn't return that doesn't come back right is these missed opportunities 
in our lives. And today we're going to really look at an incredible story in the scriptures. And, and when we, you know, think about things that sometimes people have as great fears, uh, a lot of times we think of, of different things, but one of the greatest fears that people have, especially people as they're nearing the end of their life is that they have lived this life and somehow have missed and not walked in the purpose that God has given them. That somehow they've missed uh, all that God desired to use them for and because of fear and because of uh, anxiety and because of other things. They've, they've chose to play it safe rather than to step out and to walk by faith in following God. And we're going to look at an incredible story. We're, we're going to be uh, walking through the first four chapters of the book of Esther. If you're following uh, along in our reading plan, that's where we are at. Now, if you're a guest with us today, I'm so glad that you are here. And I want to invite you uh, to jump in the midst of this reading plan. Uh, just in these moments, we are walking through this grand narrative of scripture throughout the year. And as we walk through this plan, every Every week, uh, unless the Lord really stirs a different direction, I've been uh, leaning into one of those passages that we have been reading, and we're just looking at this big story of the redemption plan of God and his great work uh, in our midst. And so we would love for you to join in that. You'll find copies of that at our connect table as you leave. You'll find that at cowie.church forward slash disciple. Uh, both of those places are great. And if you're a guest, it would mean so much to us if you would connect uh, at our connect table for just a moment. Let us know uh, of your time with us. Let us know a little information about you. We'll promise not to visit unless you want us to by the end of the day or anything crazy like that. Uh, we just want to connect as much as you want to connect in the uh, midst, but we'd love to give you a free gift. Just let you know a little bit about uh, how to plug in and connect here at Cowie. So Esther chapter number one, and we're going to, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter number four, but we're going to tell a story pretty fast. Now, what we're going to see in this, uh, this scripture and what we're going to see in this passage is that the Lord's hand is at work. Now it's an interesting book in the fact that there is no mention of the Lord in this book, but we see his hand all throughout. Chapter one uh, opens up with this incredible description, right? We're going to see uh, this description of this huge kingdom uh, of a king named Ahasuerus, right? And he uh, is a man that the Greeks would call Xerxes. He is a man who was the son of uh, Darius. He was the grandson of Cyrus, who, if you remember, Cyrus was the ruler that had said the Jews could go back to their land following the 70-year the exile. So he was the one that had said, hey, they can return. And there had been many that had gone uh, back. There had been many that had gone back. They had began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They began to uh, rebuild the temple, right? They had done all these uh, things, right, in, in rebuilding. Uh, but there were still many of the Jewish people, right, that had stayed behind. There were there were still uh, many of the Jewish people that had said, you know what, we're, we're comfortable where we are at. And what we read is that there was this giant banquet that took place. Now, Asaharis had this, uh, this seven-day banquet. And if you read the, the first verses in that uh, chapter, you're going to see that there was also, it was kind of following this 180-day uh, time of, of banquet and celebration. And what we know uh, from history is that at this same time it was going on that he was likely planning uh, a uh, unsuccessful, right, overthrow of Greece, that there was this unsuccessful war, uh, this unsuccessful invasion that he was planning. And it was likely that during these 180 days that there was all this planning that was going on.
on. And then culminating that, the king really wanted to show his stuff, right? And he wanted uh, to demonstrate his power. And at the end of that, the scripture says that there was this seven-day feast. In this seven-day feast, there was drinking and there were things uh, that were going on in the midst of that. And he decides after this week of of drinking that he's going to show off his wife, that he is going to... uh, show off his bride. Vashti is her name. And when we read about some of the things that he may have been asking her to do, right, we understand why her answer was no. Now, we don't have full details of what uh, exactly was going on there. So we're not going to go but so far in that. But what we do know is that she's like, no way, right? And and we're not sure again about why, but she says, forget it. And the king is publicly embarrassed. She doesn't come in. She publicly embarrasses the king. Uh, In chapter one, verse 17 and 18 is counselors and the men that were there said, hey, bro, um, you're going to ruin this for everybody. Ain't nobody's wife going to mind them after this unless you do something with her. Read it yourself. It's pretty much what it says. And so read it yourself. I'm just delivering it. I don't write it. And so he said, you're going to need to do something about this. You're going to need to handle the queen. And so he decides, hey, I'm going to kick her out. Uh, I'm going to depose her. We're going to find a new uh, queen, right? Because she's, uh, she's gone too far, right? And so there's some time that passes, likely the time of this unsuccessful uh, attempt at taking over Greece, right? There's this, this time gap that's there. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, the time gets there. And the king's attendants, verse 2 says, who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. So they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send out people into all of Persia, right? And we're going to look for the most beautiful and the best and the brightest. We're we're trying to find uh, these women that we believe could be the next queen, right? Basically, the king says, hey, we're going to set up the first Miss Persia contest. And they're going to come in and and they're going to come before the king and they're going to pray. They're going to do and, and when I read it, I'm, I'm like, I'm not sure all that they did, right? But there's this picture of just crazy things that are going on, and they're going to try out before the king. Now, in this passage, we're introduced to this little Jewish girl named Hadassah. Now, this little Jewish girl, Hadassah, is her Hebrew name, and it meant myrtle or plant. Uh, we know her by her Persian name, Esther, right? And so we're introduced uh, to Uh, this young orphan girl, right? And she was uh, being raised by her cousin after her parents had died. Verse seven of chapter two says this, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady, and now this is is where we learn a little bit about her. The scripture says that she was beautiful of form and face, right? He said, this lady was beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now what you need to understand is she was so from millions of people. This wasn't uh, just like, hey, we're going to go down and there's a few people we're picking from. These are millions of people that are, are scattered out. These are millions of people throughout this empire and, and they're out and they're picking these. Now, Josephus, the historian, would say uh, that the number of those people that were brought back in, the number of these ladies that were brought back to the king's harem, the number of those ladies were 400. So if that is accurate, right, and we have no reason to, to believe that it wasn't, here are these 400 uh, beautiful ladies that are taken to the king's harem. Now, Mordecai has given her some advice. He says, listen, while you are there, he said, listen, do not uh, yet reveal who you are.
you are. Don't let anybody know uh, that you are a Jew. And Mordecai was concerned about her. He had been raising her uh, as, as a father to her. And so he would go and he would go to the king's gate every day. He would check on her. He wanted to know how things were going. Now, these ladies, this wasn't just exactly what we would think about. Like, I don't know if any of you men in the room have said, hey, you know, it takes my wife forever uh, to get ready in the morning. Now, I want you to understand these ladies, they had a year to get ready. They were uh, there for a year. And during that time, I'm not sure exactly what was going on. I don't know if they had like a CrossFit, um, you know, Persia edition. I don't know if there was a move more fitness in town. I don't know what all that looked like, right? But they were, they, they were learning how they would get their hair just right. They were learning how they would be in the king's presence. They were being educated on things. They were being prepared for these moments. And at the end of this year, uh, she would put her best foot forward and she would go before and present herself to the king. And what we know about this, right, is that when the king uh, had his time with Esther after that, he said, she is the one. Hands down, she is the one. And in verse 16 of chapter 2, Esther was taken to King Asaharis to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth in the 7th year of his reign. Now, here was Mordecai in the midst of that. He was still keeping an eye on her. He was still staying close. And in verse 21 of that chapter, it says, In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, uh, two of the king's officials who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asaharis. Now, so, so these are people that have access uh, to the king, and, and they are... Uh, angry with him for some reason. Maybe they didn't like that. They didn't have a beauty pageant for them to have. I don't know what their, their, their beef was with him, but they did not like what the king was doing. They had access to the king and they developed this plot that they would kill him. So they thought to lay hands on him. Now, Mordecai, uh, and, and sometimes we think about where we're at in the midst of life and we think about the details that are going on. And a lot of times it's easy for us to say, you know what? They just happened to be here. Or it was a coincidence, but here Mordecai is there and he hears this plan to kill the king. And he told Esther, and when Esther hears this, she passes it along, and because of this insider tip, the king is saved. And so because of what she has shared and because of what Mordecai shared with her, she gives Mordecai the credit, and we read in the scripture that it was recorded in the king's chronicles. So that it was recorded uh, for him. They wanted to make sure that this was a, a moment that they remembered, and we're going to see, we're not going to get there today, but if you follow along in the reading plan, you'll see uh, that this was remembered, right? That the Lord worked in a way that the king couldn't sleep one night, and he remembered what Mordecai had done. And he decides to honor him. You'll get there along the way. So this was just this incredible uh, moment, right, where he is in the providential will of God. And in chapter 3, the villain is introduced. So with every story, what we try to find, a hero. With every good story, we try to find a hero. And we try, often there is a villain, right? And so there's this battle that goes on. And so in the midst of this story, the villain is introduced, a man named Haman. Now, there's some intentional wording here. If you look at verse 1 of Esther chapter chapter number three, and you'll find it a couple more times through the book of Esther, uh, he's referred to as an Agagite. And you're like, what in the world did they do that, right? Well, part of it's because you might be looking for baby names. I don't know. But here's the thing, right? No, this is why they did it. So the importance of this, we've got to go way back. Uh, so if you go back near a thousand years, you're going to see that Haman was a descendant of Agag, right? The leader of a people called the Amalekites, who were those that were the enemies of Israel, right? The, the Amalekites right, had to oppose them from the beginning when they departed Egypt, when they were being led out under Moses, right? They, the Amalekites were those uh, that had opposed them. And so Asaharis, his new right-hand man, is uh, someone 
one that would have hated the Jews. And so he, he was a person that hated the Jews. Now, Mo, Mordecai, if you look in chapter two, I believe it's verse five, we see that Mordecai was a son of Kish. Now, this is interesting uh, because uh, he was a Benjamite. And what we know about that is that King Saul, son of Kish, was the one that was supposed to destroy and failed to execute King Agag. You can look uh, in 1 Samuel 15 and you'll see how Samuel handled that afterwards. But what we knew is that these two people, that they knew their history, they knew where they came from, and there was a deep-seated animosity that was there. There there was a deep-seated place of of dislike. And so here Haman is put in charge. You read in the first parts of this chapter that what is to happen is everybody is supposed to bow down or pay homage to Haman. And what we find out is that Mordecai is having none of that. Now there's one thought that says, hey, Mordecai is a God-fearing Jew. And so he's not bowing to anybody except Yahweh. Uh, Then there's this other side of it that says, you know what? There's one person for sure he's not going to pay homage to. And that is Haman because there's such a tremendous dislike uh, there in these moments. So what this does, because Haman, right, is uh, not a humble guy at all, we find out in this, this passage, right? And so what he is, is filled with rage. He's upset. Mordecai is not bowing down to him, and he is having none of it. And he's filled with rage. And not only does he want to destroy Mordecai, but instead of just wanting to destroy Mordecai, he wants to destroy all of the Jews. There's a hatred for those people. He wants to see a genocide of all those people. And so he comes up with uh, this plot and goes to the king. Uh, look at verse 8. And none. And here's what we see. Then Haman said to King Asaharis, there is a certain people. Now notice he didn't say the Jews that are around, but he said, hey, listen, there's a, there's a certain people and they're scattered all throughout your kingdom. They're dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Then he goes on and says, their laws are different from those of all other people and they do not observe the king's laws. So it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. Then he says, if it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasury. So, so he makes this decree, right? The king says, hey, uh, I mean, sounds good to me. Well, I mean, if they're not obeying me, I mean, I, I don't know. I already had that trouble with, with Vashti. I mean, I'm, I'm in. And so Haman says, okay, here's what we're going to do. They cast lots. Basically, it's like this, almost this rolling of the dice that says, hey, there's going to be a time. And on this certain day, there's going to be this destruction and this massacre of all the Jews in the land. And so Haman's quick. He's like, we got to get this word out. Out. And he said, we got to get it out quick. They didn't have Facebook to post it. They didn't have text messages to go, but they send out this decree, right? And people are going and sharing this uh, in all the provinces. And they're saying, here's what's going to happen. On this certain day, the king has decreed that all of the Jews are to be taken out. Now, here's Mordecai, right? And Mordecai uh, is a Jew. Now, the king, little does he know, uh, his queen Esther is also a Jew. And Mordecai hears this mess that's going on, right? Mordecai hears uh, of this decree. And in chapter four, beginning in verse one, uh, the scripture says, Mordecai learned all that had been done and he tore his clothes and put off sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Now, Esther has no idea that this decree has been made. And so she hears that Mordecai is in sackcloth and, and the rules would be that, that he couldn't come into the gates dressed like that and that he was mourning. And, and we read at the end of chapter three that when these things were being announced that there was mourning and there was Jews that had begun to, to fast all over and they were weeping because of this decree of the king, right? And so Mordecai hears this. He, he gets in the sackcloth and, and ashes and, and Esther says, I'm, I'm upset. I, I'm, I'm worried for him. My heart is broken for him. And so she says, 
says, here's what I'll do. I'll send him some clothes so he can get out of that sackcloth and he can get back in. She sends these clothes out uh, to Mordecai. Mordecai refuses the clothes because here's something. There was, there was something at the root of all this that was going on, right? So, so he refuses uh, these clothes and, and she uh, sends out one of the eunuchs. Now we're going to see, and we're going to see this guy's name here in a little bit, but none of us are going to remember this uh, eunuch's name, right? He was assigned to care uh, for Esther by the king, and we're going to see him play an incredible part in the midst of this story, right? And so she sends uh, one of the eunuchs, and she says, hey, what's going on? And here in verse 7, Mordecai uh, tells the eunuch, Scripture says, all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Now Esther hears this and she's going to have what we're going to call a conflicting dilemma. She's in a a really tight spot. What am I going to do with this situation. And we're going to see the reason she was in the dilemma. Now, Hathak, who is this eunuch, came back and he related Mordecai's words to Esther. And Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they related these words to Mordecai. Right, she was in this very difficult spot, right? She's got a, a dilemma that she is facing, right? And it's a conflicting thing because she knows that if she goes into the king's presence that the law without being summoned, that the law says that it, it's a death sentence for her. That, that it's, it's like signing her own death sentence. Then Mordecai responds, and he gives what I'm going to call a convicting declaration. In verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not, imagine that, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And I love how he says this. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I I like how he words that. Uh, Anytime I hear somebody say, you know what, um, you know, the Lord's given me this exact thing for you and all these kind of things. I really hope they've got a book, chapter, and verse. And I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't engage with other people and, and use them to speak into our lives, right? But I like how he just declares, perhaps the Lord has you here for such a time as this. Hebrews 10:24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We need some Mordecai's in our life, right? That will share this convecting message, right? The scripture says, not forsaking our assembly together, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to spur one another along and encourage one another along to good works. And that's what Mordecai is doing. Tony Evans says this, he says, Esther had been providentially positioned to leverage influence for God's kingdom purposes. 
I love that thought, right? And notice when God places us in different places and different circumstances, when he blesses us, he blesses us that we might bless others. And so here's Esther in this moment, and she makes a courageous decision. She makes a courageous decision. Look at verse 15. The scripture says this, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's a bold statement, right? She makes a courageous decision. And I want you to notice that after she makes this courageous decision, Decision. She lets us see where her trust is because I believe she had a confident dependence. She, she made this courageous decision, but she had a confident dependence because she said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going in and I'm going to go before the king and all my maids. And I want to ask you, you get everybody fasting and praying. You get everybody uh, praying and seeking the Lord and fasting in order uh, to, to hear his voice and to seek his Face because ultimately I'm going in, but my dependence is all on him. You know, we see this incredible passage, and as we read uh, the rest of this week, we're going to see how God uses Esther in just this incredible way to deliver people. We're going to see how God works in just an incredible way. But I want you to see a truth in this passage and in this, this book that we can see so clearly. And the first thing I want you to see is that God is at work accomplishing his plan and his purposes in the midst of a broken world. There's times that we don't see it. There's times that our circumstances feel weird, but God is at work and he's accomplishing his plans and his purposes in the midst of this broken world. God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And while God may appear silent, I want to remind you that he is not signed off, that he is working in the midst of this story. And what we see while Haman is trying to destroy the Jews, Satan is at work just as he has been uh, to destroy God's chosen people, that he has been uh, at work uh, to stop and, and ultimately try to thwart the redemption plan of God. But as we sung about it, I want you to know that our God will never fail and his plans will never fail. God uses Esther to uh, deliver his people, right? And, and God is seen with his providential care at work all through this story. And so the second thing I want you to see is that God is at work accomplishing his plan and his purposes through people. It's incredible that God works in such a way that he uses people to accomplish his work. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. He said, Mordecai made it clear that God accomplishes his purposes through people. For reasons we don't fully understand, God permits wicked people to do evil things in this world, but he can work in and through unbelievers and his own people to accomplish his purposes. While he was not the author of sins, God permitted the king's drunkenness and his foolishness in deposing Vashti. He used the king's loneliness to place Esther on the throne. And in chapter 6, he will use the king's sleeplessness to reward Mordecai and to start the overthrow of the power of Haman. And in great and in little things, God is sovereign. 
And here's what I want you to see as we look at the story of Esther and as we look at the story of all the scriptures, I told you at the beginning that every good story, right, that it has a villain and every good story has a hero. And when we read this story, many of you are thinking, Esther, she is amazing and Mordecai is amazing and they are the hero of the story. But what we see in the scripture is that God is the hero of the story, that God is working in ways that are greater than we could ever imagine. And in his goodness and in his grace, he allows you and I to be part of his story. His name may not be found in this book, but his hand is everywhere in it. And we serve a God who is working for his glory and for our good. We serve a God. And the third thing I want you to see, that we serve a God and our God will accomplish his purposes. I want you to hear that this morning. This is not an if. There's not anything that needs to be added to the end of that sentence. There's not anything uh, that needs to be there because we have a God who is going to accomplish his purposes. And here's the truth. When we read this story, we're going to see. And when we look at our own lives, I want to remind every one of us, right? God does not have to use us. I just want to want you to know that this morning. God is not uh, dependent on our response in order to accomplish his purposes in the midst of this world. But I want to tell you something. If we are not willing to walk in the plans and the purposes that God has for us, oh, what we will miss in our own lives and oh, what those around us that are influenced by us will miss as we refuse to walk in obedience to his word, right? God will accomplish his purposes. Now, I've shared this story, but uh, with many of you, but one of the most impactful moments of my life when I really just understood this truth in just a personal way. I'd been wrestling with this call uh, that God was placing on my life to preach the gospel. I was wrestling with this call that God was calling me into ministry. And as God was stirring uh, my heart toward that, I'd gone to a student camp and we we were at uh, Ridgecrest and we were at a, a student camp. And during that week, right, I'd been praying and seeking the Lord. I'd go off down by the lake there, and I would pray and ask God to be clear in his voice to me. And and in the midst of all that, right, I, I I was really just wrestling with this call. And I would look, and I'd say, God, you know who I am, right? You know my past. And can I remind you that your purity is not based on your past, but it's based on your position in Christ, Can I remind you that God takes broken pieces and he makes masterpieces, that God is not dependent on on people that have lived a perfect life because the reality is the gospel says none of us have and we've been redeemed by the God of all grace, right? And we didn't do it because of any of our good works, but we did it because of what he has done in our life. So don't let your past keep you from being used by God. But I was wrestling in those moments, right? And, And that night we went in to worship and as, as we were singing, there was a young child uh, or a young student that had came and knelt at the altar and he was praying and I felt the Holy Spirit and, and many of us in different moments have sensed that the, the Lord was leading us to do something, that the Spirit of God was speaking to us and I felt like I was supposed to go and pray uh, with this young man kneeling at the altar. Now in the midst of that, I'll be honest, I was so consumed with myself and with wrestling with this, this, this dynamic of is God calling me and what am I doing and how do I know and all these things that I just ignored the voice of God and I began to make 
make excuses. Many of us have made excuses for not doing what God has called us to do. And so I'm making excuses and I'm thinking, you know, I'm sure he has a youth leader somewhere. Uh, he's not one of, one of our kids. You know, somebody, I, I don't need to go up there and pray with him. And the speaker that was there that week had a young child that was probably eight or nine years old. And he was in the very back of uh, the uh, sanctuary there where we were worshiping. He was in the back of the worship center there. And all of a sudden I could see out of the corner of my mind, this little eight-year-old boy come up and kneel down beside this young man and begin to pray for him. And, and in as loud a voice as, as I could hear without it being audible, it was like the Lord just reminded me. He said, you know what, Jason? He said, I don't need you. He said, I can use anybody. He said, I just took an eight-year-old boy and I did what I had asked you to do, but I choose to use you. And either you will walk in my purposes or you will not, but I don't need you. In, in moments later, in years later, when Pastor David had felt called away uh, from this church and I was walking through just a time wrestling with like uh, what God's desire for me was in those moments and we were in a spot where Sherry was having a gallbladder surgery and honestly I just felt and still feel way inadequate for anything uh, that God would use me in that way for and just wrestling with all that and feeling so so inadequate, right? And I, and I, and she had a gallbladder surgery and ended up having to stay at the hospital that weekend. And I opened the book of Joshua and I was reminded that morning in just as loud a voice as I had been that day, as I read of, uh, of Joshua and, and I read of, of this time where Moses had died, right? And when we think about God desiring his people to be in the promised land, if there's anybody that would be critical to that story, as we read it, it would be a man named Moses. But what I read that that day was that Moses had died. The scripture says it this way, Moses, my servant is dead. And they'd been mourning for 30 days. And he said, now get up and cross that Jordan. And in those moments, I was reminded that, that we're a moment on the mission of God, that his mission continues, that the great lawgiver Moses was not critical uh, to the process to see them go into the promised land. And I'm reminded this morning that it is not critical that, that I, for me or not critical for any of us for God to continue to accomplish accomplish his purposes, but he calls us to get up and continue on. We're a moment on the mission of God, but I thank God that he allows us to be part of that moment in our lives, right? This is an incredible truth, right? We're a moment on that. Warren Wiersbe says this, God is never in a hurry. Have you ever noticed that? He knows the end from the beginning. His decrees, though, are always right and always on time. A.W. Tozer said this, he was comparing God's sovereign purposes to an ocean liner, leaving New York City bound for Liverpool, England. The people, he said, on board the ship are free to do as they please, but they aren't free to change the course of the ship. Tozer says this, the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps it steady, keeps its steady course over the course of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. See, what we see is Mordecai was confident in the plans of God. Mordecai was confident. He said, you know what? If you choose to remain silent, God will deliver the Jews through some other way. But it's going to impact you. It's going to impact family. Listen, what, what thinks you're going to be protected in all this? But I know one thing. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And I know the story, right, that, that, that God is going to deliver his people, that God is going to be with his people, that, that, that those who curse his people will be cursed, those who bless his people. He said, from you, Abraham, he said, it's going to come a great nation. He said, I know the promises of God. 
And listen, we know the promises of God. We can trust in the promises of God. We can trust that even when we can't see it, that his hand is at work in our midst. But the truth is sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we attribute all these things to coincidence when in reality God is working providentially to orchestrate things. We see incredible things happen and we miss it. I read of a little boy who had climbed a tree and he was having a difficult time getting his way down and he slipped and he started to fall and he began to scream, God save me, God save me, God save me. And all of a sudden people were coming from all around, they're running over to see what's going on and all of a sudden there was this strange moment where his cry paused and he said, never mind Lord, my pants got stuck in a branch on the way down. Listen, we miss it and we're a people, we live in a culture where comfort is king. We live in a culture where we're content to play it safe, where we're content to, to be people that'll say, you know what, I thought about going on mission. I thought about doing that. But, you know, I read it that there's dangers there, that there's these things that can happen. There's these things that can happen. I want you to understand something in the will of God. And I love what Jan Gillette, a senior saint that I did a, a funeral service for uh, here that taught a, a, an adult lady Sunday school class. She was a warrior, man, for the kingdom. And she said, you know what, I am indestructible until God's plans and purposes for me are are done. You know, we, we were in Honduras and, and we were serving on that soccer field there and there was a, a lot of uh, folks around us and one of the guys there said, hey, these people are all in uh, gangs here uh, in the community, right? But, but I want you to know something and, and a great theologian, Tim Root, said, you know, we are as safe as we could be in the perfect will of God. Right. I've heard it said we are blood-bought and bulletproof inside the will of God. God. God is looking after his children. Now, we don't need to get out in our own way, but if we are walking in his will, we need to be a people who are not afraid. We need to people, be a people who will live fearless for the glory of his name. And the question is, could it be, you'll see it on the screen, right? Could it be that God has sent you somewhere for such a time as this? Could that be could God have you in the school that you're in, in the job that you're in, in the family you're in, in the community you're in? Could God have you somewhere for such a time as this? Perhaps God wants to use a people to shake this world for the kingdom of God. Perhaps you are here for such a time as this. So what do we do, right? We use everything that God has given us for his glory. Esther was beautiful. God created her beautiful. She may have worked a year primping up just a little bit, but I want you to understand something. God gave her those gifts, and God has given us gifts in the midst of this room. They are unique, and they are different, and God has given us resources, and he has given us all these different things, and he desires that every one of us would use them for the glory of his name. Well, what if the place that we have been positioned, right, is a place that we might be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel? Well, could it be that what we are seeing around us, and we've been attributing to coincidence, is really the providence 
providence of God in our life, that he is orchestrating things behind the scenes to accomplish his plan and his purpose? Could it be that some of you who have suffered through difficult things in your past, who who have walked through horrible things, could it be that in the midst of even those horrible and difficult things, that God has allowed you to go through those things so that you could use your platform and your influence to be a blessing to someone else? That The scripture tells me that God doesn't waste anything, that even the, the, the afflictions of this life are momentary and light compared to all that God has for us. And we're a people that instead of isolating, instead of saying, you know, there's one thing that's beautiful, right? As a church, we come together as the called out assembly of believers, as God's people. And we can have this attitude that says, listen, we're going to make a fortress right here. And in this fortress, nothing can get to us and nothing can impact our kids and nothing can go on there. And we can be a fortress of righteousness. But I want you to understand while some of that is beautiful, God has called us to be a force for righteousness in the midst of this world. He has called us to go into this world and not be insulated and isolated, but to infiltrate and to impact wherever God has planted us. And perhaps some of you have been placed where you are for such a time as this. And and listen, we trust that God is working every single day. We saw something beautiful in this passage. Esther made a courageous decision. And I believe God is calling us to decision. And I believe God is calling us to be people that will say, you know what? We read in, in Daniel that he purposed in his heart, right? There was a decision that was made in advance. I believe God is calling us to moments of decision where we will make courageous decisions. It says, yes, Lord, with open hands, as Maitland shared one day, uh, with open hands, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll serve where you want me to serve. Whatever those things are, with open hands, God, I, I make a courageous decision. But I am confidently dependent on you. She made this decision and said, I will walk and I will serve and I will go into the king's hand. But, but listen, pray and fast. And I'm going to get all my maidens to pray and fast. And you go get everybody on their face before a holy God. And you pray for those moments. And I know that as we call on the very throne room of heaven, that God is hearing our prayers. And that I'm going to be walking in the will of God. And in her life, she said, if I perish, I perish. What would it be like? And maybe God is calling of people. And I hear people say, you know what? I'd long to see revival. I'd long to see a move of God where God manifested his glory among his people. A time where the manifest presence of God was in, in, in the midst of a people working in such a way that everything was being changed. That God was saving and God was working. Listen, if we want to see those things, the move of God that we see, it does not happen apart from fasting and prayer. It doesn't happen apart from people who are totally dependent on God. You may say in this room, I long to see God move among our young people. I long to see God move. Listen, it, it is costly. Revival is costly. And the thing about us, we really know what it would cost. Now, we can't manufacture a move of God, but we can walk through history and see how he moved. I know what it would take, what God would require on my part to be part of that. To seek him in a way like I've never sought him before in fasting and prayer and independence on him. What if God is calling a people to say, you know what, I'll make a courageous decision. I'll do that today and I'm going to be confidently dependent. Our students were challenged at camp. I heard from my daughter as they got back to partake in a 21-day fast from social media. We've chosen 
and, and now she's chosen. We chose kind of for her for a long time, and now she's chosen not to have social media, so that's pretty easy for her. But what if we were willing to say for 21 days, we're going to join our youth in fasting and praying. We're going to lay aside something important in our lives, whether it was certain types of food, whether it was television. I don't know what we do with our time, but we're going to lay those things aside. We're going to turn our hearts toward heaven, and we're going to seek the face of God and beg that he might move in our midst. And we're going to be willing, whatever he tells us to do, to do it. We're going to be willing to be obedient in that. You know, sometimes people's biggest question is, is God really at work in the midst of this world that is spinning outside, you know, all around, out of control? Is God really in control of this mess? But the question I want to ask you this morning, and the question I want you to answer humbly before God, I can look in his word and he is in control Sovereignly of all things. He moves the hearts of kings. He moves and he is working and his plans will not be thwarted. But is he in control of my life? Because that's the question that he is calling on us to answer. What step of faith is God calling us to? Are we willing to obey the word of God even if it costs us? Paul said to the church at Ephesus, he said, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Some of the translations say making the most of every opportunity. We would be a people that would just rise up every day and say, God, I pray that you would not let me see opportunities pass by or that you would allow me to see what you want me to do in these moments. And that I would be obedient. And it's going to take courage. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take some people that will make a courageous decision this morning. And will seek God in prayer. And have this attitude that says, you know what? If it gets weird, it gets weird. If I perish, I perish. But I will stand on the word of God. And I will declare the truth of God. And I will rejoice because the gospel of God is going forth. Paul wrote from prison and he said, I rejoice in my suffering. He said, I rejoice in my imprisonment because he said, it's emboldened other people to share the good news of the gospel. It's emboldening others. And so we rejoice in whatever we face, knowing that God is the hero of the story, that he is at work all around us, even when we can't see it. And that in his goodness and his grace, he allows you to be part of his story. As we close, I just want to invite you. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've never trusted Christ for salvation. Maybe you've, maybe you've recognized as we've been talking that there's a lot of things that brought you to this very moment. And some of those things you're saying, maybe this is coincidence. Maybe all these things, but maybe this morning you're seeing that the, that the sovereign hand of God, right, has had you here for a divine purpose. That this morning you might see that his hand has been at work. And that throughout history, right, that he has demonstrated his love for you. The scripture says that the wages of our sin, right, is death, separation from God. But that God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe God has brought you this morning to hear 
the good news of the gospel and that God's sovereign plan that whoever would call upon his name, that, that anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus could pass from death to life, could be born again into the family of God. And this morning, God has been working to bring you to this very moment. The scripture says that in Romans 10, that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, we recognize that he is in charge and that he is working. And believe in our heart, right? Not just with our mind, not just knowing things about God, but believing and trusting in him so much that we trust him with our life. The scripture says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, that we could be saved. And that whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe that's you this morning. I want to invite you. There's nothing... Uh, Nothing about the, the words of a prayer. Sometimes we have heard people say, if you repeat this prayer after me, that you'll be saved. Don't you understand it's a condition of your heart? The scripture says that we're born again into the family of God, that there's a response to God's grace, and that response is that we repent and we believe. We surrender our lives to him. And if that's you this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus, that is my invitation to you to repent and believe the gospel and to be born again into the family of God. And for all of us who are believers. My invitation to you is to say, you know what? Perhaps God has me here for such a time as this. Make a courageous decision this morning. And then live your life in a way that's confidently dependent on him. And I believe he'll use a people. It could be that we read. It could be that, that people 100 years from now read about a revival that broke out through a people in this community. They, they read about how God moved in such a way that was incredible and and the names would all be forgotten and the things that were there. But what would be remembered is there were people that, that got into a place. And they said, you know what? I'm going to courageously decide to walk in obedience to God. And I'm going to confidently depend on him because he is the one that does the work. I'm going to do that by prayer and fasting and being obedient.